0: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Welcome to the next in the series of podcasts where we are talking to positive influencers. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Ros Morgan, who's the Chief Executive of the Heart of London Business Alliance. Hi, Ros. Hi. Can we just start with a general question? Not everybody, I think, actually really understands what a, what a business alliance does. So I thought it might be worth just sort of setting out a little bit about about what your what your organisation does and what you're there for. How long have we got?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I'll try to do this as kind of as succinctly as possible. So I lead one of approximately about 400 business improvement districts in the country, and Heart of London Business Alliance is. Um, what's known in the industry as a bid we represent over 600 businesses and property owners across the west end and the area that we cover spans across piccadilly st james's piccadilly circus leicester square and st martin's area it encompasses about 49 hectares and is what you can recognize those names it's one of the most Culturally rich areas in the world. I'll give you a couple of quick stats because it's always good. Uh, It's home to over 40 West End theatres, three world-leading art institutions, the English National Opera, um, and has about 50 film premieres every year. And and the list kind of goes on. But you might recognise some of our members, and that's kind of BAFTA the Royal Academy of Arts, the National Portrait Gallery, the Ritz, Fortnum and Mason, Hard Rock Cafe, Hippodrome, the Londoner and the Piccadilly Lights. So that just gives you a sense of our location. And the area there is worth around 4.6 billion to the UK economy, and it employs about 45,000 people. Now, in terms of what we do, we see ourselves really as, I suppose, the custodian of that area. And our main purpose really is to... I suppose, to protect and promote the area as a, you know, as a an international um, world leading cultural and commercial area. And And we do that on behalf of our members, our 600 members. We're financed by a levy and it's the combined investment of occupiers and property owners that allows us really to invest in things like cleaning and safety, which is at the very foundation of what we do. We do a lot of promotion and marketing, lobbying for our members and making sure our members have access to you know all of the support and information and services that they might need. And over the last three years, we developed a master plan for the area and we're now delivering a, a whole programme of public realm and regeneration schemes. So basically everything you can imagine from facilities management to kind of redevelopment of that heart of London area.
0: And I think for the pandemic has been obviously incredibly challenging for businesses across the board, but just that selection um of businesses that you effectively represent it, it goes right through from the theater right you know right through to culture with the royal academy, and then actually with high end businesses as well as as maybe your more high street businesses. How have you reacted to the specific challenges faced by um the West End? Um, in terms of, of of how you're doing with the people and the businesses are operating within your area?
1: Well, like everywhere, it was a bit of a nightmare, wasn't it, um, for everyone? I think especially in the West End, because there's a real ecosystem, a real unique ecosystem. And certainly through the crisis, that really became very apparent how reliant each sector is on the other. And in particular, the cultural sector, actually. But this kind of ecos- unique ecosystem, you know, coupled with... Some unique economic factors like uh, very high overheads of, you know, uh, low numbers of residents and heavy reliance on public transport, you know, to get people in and out. The West End in particular, it was really disproportionately hard hit by the pandemic. And I, I suppose I'd argue the whole of central London uh, yeah. was disproportionately hit for that exact same reason. But throughout the crisis, literally from day dot of the crisis, we, you know, my job was really to engage with government and, you know, a whole flurry of issues. And, you know, they were coming fast, thick and furious at the very beginning as everybody, including government, were trying to kind of learn and and adapt and and come up with solutions to, to issues as they were occurring. And so... You know, the things that we were dealing with were things like furlough and what does it mean? And, you know, most of us hadn't even heard of that term before um, the crises hit. The lockdowns themselves, the unlocking, all the tears. God, this brings back bad memories. (laughs) Curfews, things like business rates. How are these people going to pay for these business rates? Um, then we had a really massive issue with kind of the cultural sector. Or, you know, I mentioned that ecosystem. Like my hotels were photo me and saying, "Right, was when are the theatres opening? Because we're not going to open until then." And and so you know there was all of those challenges of right. Well, if if that's the cursor for uh, the precursor for our businesses to open, then we really need to help the the, the theatres and the live um entertainment sector. Uh, and then things like business loans and all the issues relating to to rent collections. And of course, that left us in a quite of a challenging point of view because we represent both property owners, landlords and occupiers. And it was really just trying to come up with a model that would be fair to, to, to all those members. And our role, I suppose, as the bid kind of shifted uh, so that we were really focusing on those issues um, more than, say, cleaning the streets. In fact, we put a pause on all of those type of operational things. Um, With the exception of security and safety, you know, our security team, private security team ended up patrolling the area because if you remember when we first went into lockdown it was literally an instruction to go home now yeah. well, that, that shops still had stock in their windows and and all those kind of things and I remember then going to the local MP and saying god you need to get um certificates so that certain members of staff can come in for maintenance and all those kind of things so you know the role did uh really kind of pivot to focus on that type of conversation. with We were a real broker of what was happening on the ground at that moment in time, what was happening to businesses at that moment in time, and then feeding that directly into government so that they could then... Uh, adapt and amend financial support and, and measures um, as the situation kind of evolved, and I have to say they were in listening mode. Um, I don't think they got it right all of the time, and in fact, a lot of the the support that came through actually didn't really benefit central London because of the kind of high operating costs and business rates, etc. Um, when thresholds were introduced, but you know ultimately. For us, it was about making sure that when those were decisions were being made, that actually they we're making an informed decision um, rather than, you know, anything else.
0: So you're, you're almost in the eye of the perfect storm, weren't you, in terms of um, <laughs> having to deal with all, all the different areas? And, and we also got to
1: speak to our members a lot more. You know, um, our members can be, um, there'd be focal members, there be quieter members um and you know you you know that old saying no 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 news is good news sometimes and usually our members are are quite satisfied with what we're doing and they just let us get on with it um but actually what this encouraged us to do was really we were on 600 members we phoned every single one of them you know we were emailing we were in zoom meetings etc really just trying to make sure that we could support them as best we could. And I think that was great. Actually, um, I bizarrely enjoyed that part of it. it. Wasn't so enjoyable whenever we couldn't, you know, some of the measures that the, the government was introducing couldn't support our members. That was really tough um, to to listen to the, the the issues that they were facing with no real resolution.
0: Yeah, yeah. So looking at, uh, at yourself, I mean, the, the role you've got is, I mean, it's not something you would, I suppose, open um, open, open the sort of newspaper and apply for a job. It's a very different role. It's got lots of different skills that you need to bring to it. So can we talk a little bit about you and and, and your wider interests and how, I suppose, how you came into the job that you've got and also sort of how you look to create that positive influence?
1: Okay, so why I came into the job was I landed the role as town centre manager because that was what it kind of used to be I suppose town centre management uh, city management uh, I was oh, nicknamed the sheriff of Croydon so that was my oh. I was town centre manager of Croydon about 20 years ago and that was my first dip in in the my dip in my toe in the ocean of that bid world I think we were the 15th bid in the country and now we've got about 400 And so that really was the start. And then I moved on to Kingston and then obviously into the West End. But in terms of, you know, things that uh, my wider interests and and the things that I want to have a positive kind of influence on well I've got two kids <laughs> and you know one's 11 one's 14 and I think in, in relation to the pandemic for example I, I you know I thought it was great to spend more time with them and I also really thought it was beneficial to them to see me working and they learned a lot about what I do um, and vice versa you know I got more involved in their studying um, especially kind of learning languages we had a lot of fun with that um, and they enjoyed seeing me on the telly because I was on the telly and the radio. Although my son did think that was very embarrassing. <laughs> his friends, you know, 11 year olds. Other interests, I've, I enjoy horse riding. So does my daughter. So actually we were out and about on the horses a lot more and mountain biking with my son. Um, and I think that was really important because it was great for my kids to see that you can have quite an influential role, if you like, a quite, quite busy role um, and a busy work life. But it was important also to show them that you need to get that work life balance right. Um, and that wasn't always easy to show them whenever I was doing five days a week in the office, if I'm really honest about it. And then also, aside from kind of family and all that, you're asking me about wider interests and positive influences. You know, I think that the whole homelessness agenda is very important to me. Um, I'm working in the West End. You know, it really opens your eyes to the extent of the problem. Uh, You know, we've got all these fabulous buildings, all of this money, you know, being spent and, you know, high end Um, events and festivals and yet there are people still living on our streets in the West End and that lockdown showed that with the right government will there is a way to solve that problem or to solve that particular issue and in Westminster for example almost every recorded homeless person in Westminster was accommodated during the lockdown Where they got accommodation and they received help and support throughout that period of time. And, um, you know, my figure might not be correct, it might be higher than this, but over 80% of those individuals remain, even today, in some form of accommodation and engagement, which is incredible. But the minute lockdown ended, the minute, you know, government wasn't paying for the hotel rooms to keep um, these people in, um, the streets were full again with new people coming onto the streets. And so, Heart of London, I suppose, led by me, uh, you know, my own kind of particular interest. You know, we we participate in the West End Task Force to try to tackle this. We pay for, like, dedicated outreach workers. You know, they're on our streets every single day trying to help people off the streets. Myself and the board members and my team members, we slept out rough in Trafalgar Square. I say rough. It was luxury in comparison to what real homeless people have to, to put up with. Um, And that was part of the worldwide sleep out. And it was to raise awareness and money, you know, um, to support the charities, etc. And then myself and the team, we often volunteer at the Connections Kitchen. And we put together things like survival packs each winter, which goes out to people on the streets. And of course, we've run, you know, workshops and conferences and things like that. And in fact, we've managed to even... um, work with Veolia and they've recruited um, previously homeless people into Veolia through our connections there so you know I really I feel pretty strongly about the whole um, homelessness and I think it's a real one of the nation's great failures and just not enough is being done by government to address it.
0: I totally agree with that I I remember saying um, in the middle of lockdown if there's one thing that I hoped we'd take out of it was that actually we we can deal with the rough sleepers and we can't deal with it with the issue and unfortunately um it, it hasn't worked and someone was telling me the other day that it's in some ways it's getting worse because people aren't in the city as much as they were or in the west end and people aren't carrying cash so therefore even sort of little things like them getting a, a, someone having a, a couple of pounds to go and get a cup of tea is far harder so there's so many different issues i think that, that's coming out of this that um I'm with you. I mean, for me, it's one of the biggest, biggest challenges, but actually it's, big, it's the biggest thing we've got wrong so far in, in this in this country. When you look at how you can implement change, I mean, you've just said there that, but led by you, your organisation is actually actively. And I think that is fantastic because it's actively trying to do something that will make a difference. What, what do you think the quality, qualities or attributes are that someone needs to have to be able to do that?
1: One. To want to to want change, yeah, <laughs> um, is the biggest thing, isn't it? And then, you know, God, I could list so many things, but I would imagine things like you have to be, you know, have grit and tenacity, you know, so you're not going to give up easily, you know, because we know all these things. If I, if I gave up on every conversation I had about homelessness, you'd be giving up, you know, all, all the time. So you really have to pursue it and um, and and not give up. Empathy, I think, and the ability just to understand different sides of this, you know, the same issue. Um, And that certainly applies, for example, to our members and maybe they're understanding their concerns. Um, That certainly applied, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, whenever you had occupiers who couldn't afford their rent, you know, but then it was property owners who also had their financial commitments as well. And it was trying to understand it rather than trying to blame anybody and coming up with some kind of resolution. And then also, the ability to communicate well and build that emotional connection. I think that's a a big one because it does develop trust. Um, And then I I would say, you know, a forward thinking mindset. And perhaps most importantly, I'd say, be willing to change your mind, if that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. So, you know, You know, recognize when actually there might be a better resolution or, you know, to actually have your mind changed. So I think that's very important. You have to go into to change with kind of a real open mindedness.
0: Yeah. Someone else um, in one of these podcasts said to me that, you know, you've got to be prepared to listen, but not just listen, but actually listen and and be prepared to adapt. And I think that's absolutely right um it's getting the best out of everybody that that actually creates change at the end of the day I mean again one of the things questions we've been asking people throughout throughout this series is what's the best um, piece of advice anyone has ever given you Uh, I just wonder whether you had a bit of advice that at some point someone gave you in life that made a big difference to you
1: so I'd say yes I've had lots of advice (laughs) (laughs) during the years. And I'd say that most of the most useful advice probably came from my parents. Um, My dad often used is the term, your missus, your mercy, or when one door closes, another opens. And I, I, you know, I truly believe that, you know, so maybe, no, I've applied for jobs and haven't always got them. But actually, then the the job that I do get was so much better for me. My mum, she would always tell me to be myself, and that I was and capable of whatever I put my mind to. You know, if I told my mom I wanted to go to space, she'd say, you can do it. Um, and then also my first chairman, Joe Rowe, who's Stephen Rowe from m it's his father. He told me to write everything down. Um, and that was 20 years ago. And I still do that to this, you know, this day. <laughs> I write everything down. Um, so, yeah, I'd say those are the kind of, you know, pieces of vices that I would... Um, Follow and have done throughout my life and my career.
0: And has it been sort of a, a key event that's helped define your outlook on life? I mean, obviously, we've just been talking about rough sleepers. Has there been something that's made you think, yeah, look, that that is a particular issue that I just, I, you know, that I'm passionate about?
1: Well, I grew up on benefits in like a working class Belfast during the Troubles, you know, during the 70s. But it was my parents who really brought about kind of key events that would change my life and shape my life to this very day. And one of the greatest things they ever did for me and my brother and sister was to move us out of the town and into the countryside away from the troubles and it was way beyond their reach but they worked I can't tell you how many jobs to make it happen and that taught me very very early on I think I was only about six or seven that like genuine and hard work and genuine Mm. determination you can achieve even what to them must have felt like the impossible and, and not to allow that to put you off um and I think that has played a part in me becoming even a chief executive for the first time. I was in my mid-twenties and I wasn't put off by, you know, a board of 15 men. Um, The second thing they kind of did was get me into horse riding, which might sound a bit odd, but sport, I can tell you, is a really great equaliser, especially during the troubles in Northern Ireland, like... um, Because it's not about where you come from, where you live, or what side of the fence you're on, as we say in Northern Ireland, or how much money you have even. It was about your ability. Um, And it also, you know, as a kid during the Troubles, I didn't really get exposure to people from different walks of life. Um, The only way I got that was through horse riding. And I met all sorts of people. I learned how to communicate and socialize around young and old different upbringings, different wallets, and with people with contradicting viewpoints and beliefs. And this, I think, gave me the ability to discuss and debate, like to stamp my ground when I needed to, but also, like I said earlier, to be willing to have my mind changed. Um, And I think that was incredibly important and has really stood, you know, me in good stead right up until, you know, my career now. And then the third thing, I think they encouraged me to learn languages and to travel to get me out of the troubles, basically. Um, And I now have, I think I have like five language GCSEs and two degree level languages. Um, And I lived in France and Spain and Japan all before my mid-twenties. And then I traveled all over the world subsequently. Um, And again, I think that gave me great insight into different cultures and beliefs and taught me to have genuine empathy and respect for different viewpoints. You don't have to agree with it, but you should respect it. And here I am now, living, you know, I'm working in London, arguably the most culturally rich and diverse cities in the world, and I feel very, very comfortable here.
0: That's brilliant. I mean, I think the the, the travelling and the different cultures just brings such diversity to your thought as well. And I think, as, yeah, as you say, absolutely. it's it, it's so important um, that that we do have that and we have that tolerance, uh, which is fundamental.
1: That's a good word, tolerance. I like that. Yeah.
0: Um, we're asking everybody in this series the, the same question which is what one thing would you like to positively influence over the next year or the next 5 years i wonder what yours would be
1: well apart from kind of the homelessness agenda something that i've become passionate about is is making you know, recognise and I just described the West End and how culturally rich it is and named all of the art institutions, etc. But I want I would I just want it to be more accessible. And I think art and culture it can be quite alienating for people. Um so like when I was younger I found galleries really intimidating, you know, right up until I suppose my late twenties, early thirties. But obviously now I'm working in, as I say, with these culturally rich institutions and, and incredible world-renowned artists and I've got this real opportunity to work with them to bring art out onto the streets. I call it to allow the art to spill out onto the street the streets. And that really will allow us to address that challenge. And you know, I think that it's important that people can get access to art and culture in an environment where they are happy and and willing to do it and can do it in their own time. And you know, in Westminster for example, we've got some of the most deprived areas and people in the country and you know even on their own doorstep I don't believe they feel comfortable getting into the big institutions so instead you know I think it's important that we can bring it out onto the streets for them to access um, as they choose and so what we launched last year was something called Art of London and it was hugely successful um, it also coincided with you know lockdown so you know maybe when the buildings were still closed of some of our famous art galleries and things like that actually we brought the art out onto the street so it kind of you know kill two birds with one stone if you like yeah. it, it made it more accessible at a time when people no one could go indoors um and so we had things like augmented gallery and that was a unique art trail where we had, for the first time in history, we had the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery and the Royal Academy work together. Can you believe that? (laughs) They've never worked together on anything. And so we worked with them to pull together this art trail of about 20 plus pieces. And it was located right across the West End, outdoors. And you used your phone or whatever to um, scan a QR code and suddenly um, it came to life and you could see art that would usually be inside those large institutions. And that was so well received. Then we had Piccadilly Art Takeover as we were welcoming more people back to the capital. And we turned Piccadilly and Piccadilly Circus into this kind of outdoor exhibition space. So we had, I don't know whether you saw, but we had these kind of colourful, colourful zebra crossings. Yeah, I know I did. Hanging campuses, we had um, uh, Piccadilly lights, screen, these kind of big video takeovers. And the whole area just came alive with art and with some of the, the, the most renowned UK leading artists. And so my when I was looking at that, I was thinking, you could be looking at this and not even know that it's art, but you might like it or you might not like it. And say you do like it and suddenly you start taking an interest in one of the artists and then suddenly you're drawn into a world that perhaps you've never had access to before. And then we had um, the Tus- Tusk Trust Trail. <laughs> I'd say that with a few <laughs> babies. And that was a lion trail, so it was a pride of... Colourful lions, which was a real welcome addition to the Piccadilly area. And it was, these were lions that were kind of designed colourfully by celebrity type ambassadors. And it was to raise awareness of conservation of uh, lions on this occasion. That was very well received. And of course, the media picked that up. And, you know, it was across the press and across the world. Um, So it wasn't just about people being there. They could also access a lot of this via the power and the magic of media. Uh, we had pop-up art exhibitions showcasing the work in different. Unfortunately, we had some vacant retail spaces, not many, but some, and we filled those. And then, last but not least, just as the pandemic hit, we had lot la- We had just launched Leicester Square Scenes in the Square Statue Trail, and that's you know scenes of iconic.
0: I um, saw that one.
1: Have you seen that one? Yeah iconic kind of images from movies right across kind of each decade across a century Um and it has things like Laurel and Hardy my favorite is Gene Kelly, Kelly singing in the rain and by the way that's the one and only and first ever statue of Gene Kelly ever that's amazing and we we got permission from his wife Patricia Kelly and she came over and helped to launch it and that generated over two billion press coverage just in that first year. And, and since then, we've just been building and building and building on um, those statues. And it means that people can come and visit it outdoors. It's free and it's fun and they get have their photograph taken. And of course, then that goes across the world via intranet and social media. So... You know, I think we, we had a good stab at it for the first year and we we're really looking forward to it. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. People just want to participate and take part in it. And that's exactly what I wanted it to be. Something that, you know, everybody could enjoy
0: for fun and free. I think that's absolutely brilliant, Ros. I mean, I think you're doing an amazing job. And the fact that you can actually help influence. And I think the whole point about the arts and culture, I absolutely agree, is is, is, it is intimidating. I remember coming down from Yorkshire and being incredibly intimidated about walking into a museum or something like that and, and bringing it out and Realising you don't have to have swatted up on masses of information about what you're looking at, but you can just enjoy it, I think is fundamental. It's really important. So thank you so much for taking part. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And like I say, keep doing the great job you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.